Happy Sunday, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in for another episode from the Isle of Dr. Garneau. I'm Kelly J. Lewis. With me, as always, of course, is Dr. Chris Garneau. What shall we talk about this week? Dr. Garneau, there's so much. I know. This is, these are good times for political discussions. i tell you what. Um, there's actually, you know, a lot of stuff that's going on that ends up in the, in, in the background that normally would be kind of a big deal. So that's kind of how big it is right now. Um, I actually wanted to open up today with a quick little PSA. So um, for those of you who are concerned about whether or not polling stations are going to be, you know, your polling places are going to be a little bit overfilled, maybe crowded. We have a primary coming up this summer, and then we have the general election coming up in November. Um, you can reach out to the uh, the Oklahoma, I think if you're in Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Election Commission. I did it online. It's really easy. And request a mail-in ballot. Yes. And you can you can request all ballots for your, you just put in your zip code, all ballots for you for uh, year 2020, and that gets you covered. So I just want to throw that out there because I know a lot of people are concerned about it, and I want to make sure everyone votes. And Kelly, what I was thinking of is this is a really great time um, especially for for universities like the place where I live, because it, it's difficult sometimes for you know new voters, college age voters who are just now able to maybe vote in their first presidential election, because uh, you kind of have to vote. Like, if, for example, at USAO there in Chickasha, where I teach, it's difficult if someone is a resident, let's say, of of Oklahoma City or Marlowe or wherever it happens to be. And they maybe they, they don't want to drive back home on a Tuesday because that's a stupid day to have an election in the first place. Um, but it, it would be good. I, I think one of the things that, that you know faculty and other other people can do, and just just for everyone in general, to really encourage uh, that simple act. It's really easy to get a mail-in ballot, and that way you can mail in your vote, and you don't have to go back to your home precinct. And that's one of the ways that we could really increase voter participation, especially amongst the younger crowd. I love that. And I did not realize that you could do that for the entire year of 2020. How great. Yeah, uh, and that was something I just figured out because I, I knew that the July elections were coming up. And um, here in Norman, one of the, they're, they're talking about a, a ballot initiative for Medicaid expansion, which is a really big deal uh, to help cover a lot of uh, people for health care. And, um, you know, people in my, my son, he's 20 years old. He was kind of unaware of it. So we, we talked about it a little bit. Um, a lot of times my students are unaware of it, not because they don't care, but because they're working on kind of other things. And so I think, you know, everyone talks about the youth vote not being there and, and whatnot. And I, I think here's how I've come to think about it. Cause you've heard this a lot in the primary of Bernie Sanders supporters being so young and not showing up to vote all the time. I, I don't think it's an apathy thing. I think, you know, it, it's like anything like I didn't know how to change my oil until someone taught me how to do it or, you know, how to change a tire or how to, you know, do basic stuff. It, it's the same thing with democracy and voting. Um, I think it's, it's as, as an instructor and as adults in general, I, I feel like, it's a really great opportunity to say, hey, if you want to exercise your democratic vote, here's a way you can do it. And, you know, for a lot of people, it's, it's a safety thing, not wanting to wait in, in the big, long lines. But for a lot of younger people, it's just the first time they've done it. They don't realize, like, oh, I can't, you know, just vote wherever I go to school. I actually have to vote where I live and, and that kind of thing. So I, I think especially for the elections that are coming up in 2020 and not knowing, for example, where COVID is going to be uh, in November, 
this is a really great opportunity. So I just wanted to throw that out there for any listeners there in Oklahoma. It's it's totally free. It doesn't cost anything. And all you got to do is just log in. They'll put in your, your name and your birthday and they'll find you. And the for free, they will send you a ballot over the mail. I love it. And what a great yeah. thing to know. Anyway, I think that absentee balloting and mail-in balloting, they, that's been available. It's just not been promoted within the state as a viable way to do things because we're red and they hate it when we vote. Yep, exactly. You know, like we, we mentioned a few times uh, on the show, Trump has even said it himself. When pe- more people vote, Republicans do poorly. And it's, uh, you know, in that, for just for anybody, though, I think, you know, democracy needs to be expanded, especially in, in this kind of time where we've got a lot of, you know, uh, uh, concerns about showing up to a polling place in person. It's a really great time. So I wanted to talk about some polls. I'm a statistician and I'm really fascinated with polling and polling trends. And there were some really big ones this week. And, and the first one is to show that um, Joe Biden uh, has been, you know, he's, he's been pulling ahead of Trump by anywhere from two to eight points really ever since they kind of said he's the presumptive nominee. Now, the two to eight points sounds promising, but at the same time, Trump has such an electoral college advantage that even a, a two-point lead really isn't much of a lead and probably wouldn't actually translate into a Biden victory. But this last week, there were polls showing a, at minimum a 10-point advantage, and they were digging deeper into the polls. And one of the things that they found is that Trump's disapproval rating is really high. It's way over half, but it, it was, you know, they give you this Likert scale of strongly approve all the way to strongly disapprove. And uh, NPR reported that Trump has a 47% strong disapproval rating. And that is one of the worst approval ratings that we've seen of any president uh, coming up to election and really any president in history. The last time we've seen disapproval ratings like this was right before George Bush left office. If you remember that in 2008, right before the election, uh, when Obama was elected. Um, So Trump has a serious uphill battle to climb. The other poll that was interesting is that about two thirds of all Americans uh, even though over half of Americans believe race issues are important and that uh, we need to address them now, about two-thirds of Americans say that Trump has made uh, racial divisions worse in the United States. And that includes about half of white Americans. That is a big deal. There's a couple of things that I want to ask. Uh, just getting back to the absentee voting just really quick. Are you confident that there aren't there isn't going to be rampant voter fraud by requesting it this way oh yeah i i i i don't think i don't think you would see voter fraud in any um in any capacity higher than you would see in in a, in a normal year which is you know less than 0.3 percent of of votes that uh are questionable and so it's, it's sort of a baby in a bathwater issue, you know, like for the most part, you can't, you can't stop all voter fraud, but the, the actual voter fraud that takes place, which is really interesting, isn't all that big of a, it's not the way we think of it. So most people, especially on the Trumpian side, when they hear voter fraud, they think of undocumented people voting, um, or sometimes they think of, you know, Chicago politics, dead people voting. 
most of the time it's people voting outside of their district is essentially what happened. Like Trump um, <laughs> made a request to vote in Florida uh, and it actually got rejected. Uh, I just read a quick little news story because, of course, he lives in Washington, D.C., so that's where he has to vote. Uh, he wanted to vote in Florida because Washington, D.C. has no, you know, it's so Democrat, it doesn't matter, but Florida's a swing state, so it doesn't make me surprised why he would want to vote there. Uh, but that's actually uh, the most common form of voter fraud. So, no, I don't think mail-in balloting will affect that at all. Okay, and um, just as we're talking about polls, Let's talk about the margin of error real quick so folks know what that means, that MOE plus or minus and whatever number at the bottom when you're looking at these this polling data. Um, where is it that margin of error kind of makes that data irrelevant? Yeah, so the margin of error really, like when we talk about error bars, what we're doing is talking about confidence and without getting too geeky on it. Um, in statistics terms, that just means that Whenever you take a survey or you have surveyed data, you have to adjust for error. And error it comes from a lot of different places. So a lot of times you see the margin of error being plus or minus five points, meaning um, if we say that Joe Biden is ahead by 10 points, that means that he could actually be ahead by 15 or he could be ahead by as little as five. It's just somewhere in that area. And that sounds really imprecise. And that's because polls still aren't perfect. Um, we're getting better at it, but it, it still is very difficult. One of the problems, especially when polling against Trump, is Trump voters a lot of times get missed because they hadn't voted before. And, and usually you only include likely voters in polls. So an unlikely voter does not get counted in there. The other thing is, you know, all we have is exit polls and asking people who they think they're going to vote for. And Trump is such a divisive candidate that there are a lot of people, uh, a lot of white people, uh, who wanted to vote for him last time but wouldn't tell a pollster that. So Trump was actually within the margin of error of Clinton. And the margin of error was, I think, as, much, as high as seven points the night of the election. And he barely, you know, he, he, lost the, he lost the popular vote, as was the case. But the problem is that margin of error also cannot accurately adjust for the electoral college. So if you really want to get a good sense of, of where the vote is going to go, what you really need is a margin of error poll that or survey poll that includes Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Florida, because those are as sad as it is. Those are the states where it's really only going to matter. You know, I mean, I'm still going to vote here in Oklahoma, but I know for the presidency, not for all elections, but for the presidency, the odds that my vote matters a whole lot really isn't very high. I feel that. <laughs> we, we know yeah. that. And I've only voted in Oklahoma and Texas. So we know how much my vote mattered. I mean, Bush was getting to be president, so... It was, right, it was right. that era where lots of votes didn't matter anyway. Um, so let's go back to now, now let's, now that we know that, cause it's like I said, I know a lot of people don't understand what that margin of error is and how imprecise it sounds. So let's talk about the, I guess the reality of what those numbers mean about those disapproval ratings. Yeah, so a two, uh, well, a 47% strongly disapprove. That means that voters are given a, an option 
basically five choices. You either strongly approve, approve, neutral, disapprove, or strongly disapprove. Um, Trump is getting, if you look at the people who say approve or strongly approve, it's about 35%. And that is the number that has not budged. And it won't. Those are the always Trumpers. Everything he does is gospel. I will follow him to the end. What, you know, I mean, they're, they're in the back. Um, they're not moving, um, no matter what. Uh, it's the other 65% that we see moving. So you, you've got kind of what I'd say is non-Trumpy Republicans. They can be swayed one way or the other. Um, and you've got independents and moderates who they kind of move around quite a bit. Um, so really, when you look at the strongly disapprove, I mean, hardcore liberals are always going to be in that strongly disapprove camp. What you're adding to them to get to that 47%, honestly, are a lot of the, what I would call traditional Republicans and independents who aren't really in Trump's camp. So what that means, honestly, is that for the election, that matters a lot. If those numbers stay the same, um, he's got a really uphill battle to climb. And I know everyone was saying that in the last election, too. It was a walk away for Hillary Clinton. But it, it really does. This looks a lot different. And I don't necessarily know how much it is about Biden as, as much as it is about Trump. I will say this. Biden gave one of his most clear and concise speeches uh, from, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think he was, in, maybe he did it from public. I can't remember, but I thought maybe he did it from home. Uh, I just caught, I just listened to the, the audio of it, and it was pretty good, actually. He, he addressed the nation in a way that sounded very presidential in terms of leadership. He didn't have any missteps. And, you know, I mean, that may have actually made a difference in these last polls that came out. But, you know, it, it, um, we're in a time of high strife right now, and so you're going to see those polls being driven to certain extremes. So it really depends on what happens between now and November. Well, I think that Biden needs to just stick to the teleprompter. Just don't, don't, don't veer off from that. That's where Trump goes wrong. You, you just stick to that. <laughs> yep. And and number and two, you know, even with his gaffe with Charlemagne the God, with something like this, he has had all of the appropriate responses. And dare I say, seeing President Obama get more vocal and start putting this stuff out on social media and things like that. I'm comforted by that. I like to go and pretend like he's still the president for like a third <laughs> and a half term or something. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting that um, people are looking towards the president for leadership. And in Trump, he had a rough week. So um, as the, the protests were ramping up, uh, one of the, you know, we, we have to, again, demarcate between the majority of peaceful protesters and those who were not peaceful. Um, but when that kind of became, when it became known that on the streets of Washington, D.C., across from the White House and, and close to the White House, that there uh, was a lot more, um, a lot more animation when it came to the late night protests, they moved Trump to an underground bunker, um, which he later said he was inspecting. Gosh, I don't know how anyone buys his stuff anymore, but um, it, it was, you know, it, I'm not saying the president doesn't need to protect himself in this case. I'm just saying that, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily show leadership when he's hiding out in a bunker instead of addressing what needs to be going on. And then there was the whole debacle where he did have some peaceful protesters and they moved them out with tear gas. We're talking about peaceful protesters, not riots. 
that were moved out with tear gas, so he could give this very odd speech. And then he stands in front of this very historic Episcopal church in D.C. holding a Bible that I'm pretty sure he uh, can't quote anything from um, as this weird photo op. And it, it just like, I think that more than anything, really, it, it shows how disconnected he is from where the people are right now. He's still thinking in terms of photo ops and ratings. How are my ratings? How are my ratings? And people need leadership right now. They're looking for someone to say, okay, we need to have some ideas. And, and Biden, you know, he kind of towed the Democratic Party line. Like you said, it was kind of teleprompted, but it was good. You know, he was talking about we need to demilitarize police and, you know, we need to, uh, you know, kind of break some of the power that um, police departments, police unions, those types of things have had um, that make it possible for people you know, who have had multiple complaints against them to keep their jobs. And he gave some very specific things to talk about where Trump is, you know, he's, he's definitely said, we feel very sorry about George Floyd. I've been talking to his family. You know, he makes himself sound like, you know, he's trying to take on a, an MLK kind of tone when he clearly doesn't have the, the bona fides to do it. Like he does not have that kind of reputation. Um, so it, overall in the, you know, the court of public opinion, People aren't looking for someone to glorify, which is what Trump, I think, is looking towards. They're looking for someone who has some answers and is willing to be bold and put some ideas on the table. Um, and I think that that really is giving Biden a little bit of a boost. I think it was hilarious that Trump said that he was going down there to inspect it and realized that Obama left it in horrible shape. And like, I, I laughed at that. I was like, oh, so you inspected the fridge and didn't see anything you wanted and blamed Obama. But and uh, there was a, a Borowitz report headline was that, you know, uh, Obama never had to go down into the bunker. It's like, well, no, he wouldn't have. He would have been outside. Right. He would have been addressing exactly. the people. And he wouldn't have had them cleared with tear gas either. I mean, that's the, the thing of it. And 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 I, I think we're we're seeing a lot of unrest. I mean, as I've been thinking about this as a sociologist. So we're looking towards what's happening right now in this time of unrest and looking at the the juxtaposition of the peaceful protesters and the looters and rioters. And, you know, the way that I see it is that I think a lot of the looters and rioters are more than anything opportunists. They're, they're seeing um, a state of chaos and disarray as a way to get an opportunity to do something, um, to loot or whatever it happens to be. Um, but I think just nationally, the pandemic led to an economic break, breakdown, led to, um, you know, all the other health concerns the fact that we're acting now on race issues in a lot of ways has to do with the fact that we're seeing a lot of instability. There's a sociologist named Emil Durkheim, um, and he had a, a theory of enemy. An enemy is a loss of social norms and it's social instability. And I think the, the instability that's happening right now has led to this moment as being the moment that we're really paying attention because George Floyd was not the first by any means um, form of police brutality that we've seen against people of color. It maybe have been maybe the most graphic, the most televised in a lot of ways, but it was, you know, a long time coming. And, it, and I think it really was this moment of so social instability that has kind of 
motivated this push to address the issue in, an, in a, a real comprehensive way. I think so, too. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, especially with all of this and with the peaceful protesters, and we've heard a lot about people from other communities coming in to start all this, and we see some pale faces <laughs> starting this yeah. and, and tagging things. And and then we see the other side of the anti-protester. I mean, that's fascinating to us, this anti-protester that is mad at the protest for, for, for just that reason, just because it's a protest, the nerve. Yep. It's, uh, and a lot of times we see that, um, there, you know, there are different factions within society. And, and the one, one way I always think about it is through every society throughout history, you have people who are what I'm, I'm not going to call liberal and conservative, but they're progressive and traditional. And so the progressives are the ones that want to move ideas forward. We need to adapt. That's, that's part of evolution. Uh, we need to adapt to this environment. We've got to figure out how we're, how we're going to make it. Um, so we need to keep pushing forward. The role of the traditionalists are to put the reins on the progressives to like keep it from moving too fast. And so society, in the best way really for society to move is to move slowly forward to be able to um, meet the challenges that's coming ahead. But the problem is it doesn't work like that. It's three steps forward, two steps back, right? And so like, and we see that with uh, the civil rights movement and um, the Vietnam War and, you know, even with Obama, three steps forward and then Trump two steps back in terms of change, societal change. Um, and so that that is kind of that natural reaction that we see, the anti-protesters, because they see this as an affront to um, to law and order and to society and we're, we're breaking down. And uh, I don't really see it that way. I see it as we are moving forward. And I, I don't mean that riots and protests and the loss of property is, is moving forward. That's a, that's something different. I'm talking about the, nat- the national conversation that we're having on, on race right now. Um, and I think that's kind of necessary to kind of push forward a little bit. And you're going to see a pullback on it. But in any of these cases, like, I mean, if you want to go over the past, you know, 80 years and look at women's rights, and uh, racial justice and the rights of gays and lesbians and transgender people, it's always been one side pushing forward that the rest of the country eventually catches up to. And I do hear this occasionally is, don't you want to be on the right side of history for once? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's like, why do you always want to take the side of the, of, and it seems like the, those that are pulling on the reins in some ways are taking the side that's going to be obsolete in about 20 years because what we're hearing from mainstream Republicans right now, um, and, and this is true nationally, I don't know if they're pandering or, or what's happening, but you know, they are kind of where the Democrats have been on structural racism. Yes, it's time for a change. Um, I, I see that as a good thing. I think that if you can get more people on the right side, when, when more Republicans started coming around uh, on issues of uh, uh, gay and lesbian rights, I thought that was great. Um, and, and yeah, it's frustrating looking at the parties duking it out and how long sometimes it takes for these things to happen. But really, it's these big, big moments that push everyone forward. Because if you look at um, white Southerners' views on on race in general, the civil rights movement pushed those people. We're talking about middle class white people pushed them. Um, at sonic speed once they were able to see what was really happening out in the streets. So I, 
I, I think the protests, the peaceful protests are a wonderful thing for the country to be able to get some forward momentum. You know, as a brown woman, sometimes it feels it's one step forward and two steps back. And with this Trump administration, it's going to take all of us who who stand on the shoulders of those who fought for these rights. We're just going to have to lock arms and push forward on that because we we can't allow this this backward momentum, I guess, especially right. when we've worked so hard for it. Yeah. That, and that's the other issue too, that when you're in those states, you know, those states or stages where it feels like it's moving backwards. Um, definitely. There's kind of this idea of how, how far back are we going to have to go? How long are we going to have to wait for this to, to, you know, to, to rectify itself? Um, you know, that I, I always paraphrase and I can never remember the quote, but one of the most powerful things I think that Martin Luther King Jr. talked about was the long arc of history bending towards justice. And as a statistician, I can almost see that line, you know, like progress moves and steps ups and downs like that. But if you even it out, what you do see is this trajectory that's moving in the right direction. One of the reasons I love listening to President Obama, I still call him President Obama, always will, yes, sir. Um, is that he he talks so he talks about it in hopeful terms, even in times that are really trying and challenging. Like there's, I, I maybe I, I kind of catch what you're saying. Like there's something soothing about listening to him, and like okay, and in in some ways motivating. Like it really motivates you to, you know, we're gonna pull up our boots one more day and just kind of keep marching on. You know, like um, it's and 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 that's something that, that Trump, I'll be honest, does not do for me. And, and I know for his most vocal supporters, it gets them all agitated. Um, but I, I don't feel hopeful necessarily when I listen to the guy. And uh, Obama just had kind of had that that thing, whatever it was. So you know, I don't know if Biden really has that. So in some ways, I think it's good that Obama is now making himself more publicly available, so that people uh, have a voice to listen to because. Um, it's pretty fascinating when you pull Americans today, they still, you know, Amer- Americans in general today feel that Obama was the best president of their lifetime. Wow. Okay. So with our last couple of minutes, um, and I don't know if we can like start here and maybe, uh, start there or end here and start there next weekend. But, uh, what about Trump's pr- crazy press conference? Oh God, he's always got one. Um, today, so I, I listened, I looked at the headlines and the headlines weren't necessarily misleading, but they were, you know, they had to like piece together this, this two minute rant of, of this, this stream of consciousness thing he said. So he decides to invoke George Floyd, which I wish he would just stop. Um, the way he talks about it is it's, you know, I know he's trying to sound concerned and empathetic and to me it just doesn't come off as very genuine but anyway so he's talking about george floyd george floyd's in heaven right now looking down at all the good things we're doing and i think he was trying to talk at first about the national conversation on race and social progress and so he was i think he was sort of going in the right direction and then all of a sudden he starts talking about the economy and gets off script and he brings it around to himself and starts talking about how great his, his job numbers are because it's not as bad as it was last week or something. And it was not the right time. Like it was just, it made it sound like George Floyd is, is cheering for Trump's job approval number. I don't know. It was 
odd. And it, it, it was like the, the guy can't read a room. Um, and it, it, it seemed to a lot of people, maybe a disrespectful invocation of, of George Floyd's name and memory. Uh, that's how I felt about it. And uh, when Mad Dog Mattis comes out against you and all of these generals that he so revered when he first got in office, now they're just like disgruntled and, oh, I fired him. And he didn't need to know that I fired General Mattis because he wasn't in my inner circle. Talking about John Kelly, who was your chief yep. of staff, who knew everything. Like, it's, it's, it's so it's, crazy. Everyone is now, it's, it's, it's the circling the drain thing where you've got his 35%, you know, Trump's got his, that 35% that's with him come hell or high water. And it, you know, unless there's a major change, you know, we see people in the Republican establishment, Colin Powell, let's add to the list, although Powell was for Obama in a lot of ways. Um, but you see a lot of these highly revered people who traditionally are kind of on the right side of things, I think, who are looking at him and really kind of judging him for his leadership at this point and now feeling that this is the time to be vocal. So, yeah, this is this was not a good week to be Donald Trump. What do you think about all of these like Lisa Murkowski and everybody finally saying how uncomfortable they are with him. Yeah. I think here's my prediction. If things don't change and I, I, I don't think they're going to change that much. I think uh, Republicans who are running for reelection in the Senate in the house and possibly even locally, you're going to start seeing some distance. Um, and, you know, at the end of George Bush's term in that 2008 election, he, he couldn't he couldn't get an invitation to a campaign rally, you know, if if he begged for it. Um, I think you're going to start seeing some Trump distancing coming up. Well, we're going to certainly keep an eye on it. Now, for you uh, Oklahoma voters, if you're interested, it really is very easy. All you got to do is uh, give the Oklahoma State Election Board. That's OK.gov slash elections. And um, that takes you right to the information about a for absentee voters. And it tells you how to do it, which it does look really easy. And they have a uh, acceptable form of ID as a federally recognized Native American nation or tribe. You got that, Indians? Cool. You can use your tribal ID to vote with an absentee ballot. That just made my day. That's awesome. Yes, indeed. So uh, you can check that out in Oklahoma. If you're in other states, make sure that you check that out with your own state election boards. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, that's going to do it for us today. If you missed this conversation or any of our past episodes, you can catch up with those wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kelly J. Lewis with Dr. Chris Garneau. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great day.